Let me do my part to say happy Father's Day to you all. Father's Day, I think like many holidays, can be a moment where we once again evaluate how life is going. Mile markers in life have a way of leading us into moments of introspection. So many of us may have already asked this morning or will ask before the day is over, how's it going? How is life going these days? Am I happy and thankful generally or or is life generally hard right now? In fact, I want us all to jump in on that exercise, whether you're a father or not, whether you're young or old. Let's do a quick personal pulse check, as it were. Ask yourself, is your life right now generally going well, or is it generally going pretty badly? Or would you peg it in relation to other seasons that have either been easier or harder? Or here's another question. Why are things the way they are? How did you get to where you are? What explains the good? What has determined the hard things in your life? Or to put it provocatively, why do bad things happen to good people? Why? Or another set of questions for us to entertain. Whether your life is generally good or bad right now, whether you have an explanation as to why, I ask, what is most important? What is most important to you? What matters most? What's the one hard thing in your life that if you could, you would remove it? What's one good thing in your life that you would want to protect at all costs? Well, whether you've settled on answers to those questions in this brief moment of introspection, let's set those aside for now. But those kinds of questions, you should know, will help us apply the book of Job to our lives over the next 11 weeks. In fact, those kind of questions really make up the the outline and the structure to the whole book of Job. So today we begin a new series in the Old Testament book of Job. Turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. It's right to the left of the middle. Job is a story largely about one man's experiences in this broken and fallen world. And there are three sections to the book of unequal length. Early in the book, Job's life takes a sharp turn from being marvelously good to being unspeakably horrible. In the long middle section of the book, Job wrestles with the question, why? Why is this happening? And then in the end of the book, Job learns that what is most important, whether life is going well or hard, what is most important is God. Trusting God and worshiping God. And that's really what the book of Job is is about. It's about God. 
Yeah, it's a book called Job. And it is a story that traces Job's circumstances and questions. But ultimately, it's a story about God, what he's up to, and how we're to live in his world. As we'll see over the next 11 weeks, the book of Job is about nothing less than the vindication of God. The vindication of God. And we'll get just a bit of that big picture and main theme even today from the first chapter. So let me read the first chapter for us. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven. And burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. There's a lot of emotion to that passage. Not to ruin the emotion, but we should think in terms of structure. There are four scenes in this chapter, four vivid, dramatic, quickly moving scenes. First, we could call it a great guy. A great guy. We're introduced to a great guy in verses 1 through 5, a man named Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Who is this guy? Where is Uz? Well, we don't know where Uz is on a map, only that it was most likely outside the promised land, probably in Edom. Scholars think that it's most likely that Job lived in the days of the patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he wasn't of the Abrahamic family, we might say. He wasn't what would later become known as a Jew, per se. And yet he had somehow become introduced to the one true God and worshipped him. He really was a great guy. And when I say great guy, I don't just mean he was really nice and pleasant to be around. I mean he was great in his riches, in his relationships, in his reputation, and most importantly, in his righteousness. And that's where the description starts, with his righteousness. He was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, God will say the exact same words about Job two more times over these first two chapters of Job. So apparently, this summary of his character is a big deal. It's something we should take careful note of and we should keep in mind. Because that righteous description of Job is given such careful attention, we should give careful attention to each little phrase there. He's blameless, it says. That might sound like he's sinless, but he wasn't sinless. No human being has been except Jesus. Blameless here instead means full of integrity, true, genuine. It says that he was upright, which means he was straight in his dealings with others. A straight shooter, we would call it. He feared God, which doesn't mean that he dreaded God, but that he had a holy awe about his relationship with God. And hence, he turned away from evil. And again, not perfectly, but genuinely, and as a significant direction of his life. That's his righteousness, but then verse 2 speaks of his relationships, his family relationships. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. That's a lot of kids. 
He even had a full number of them. Seven sons, ten children total. Numbers like seven and ten are numbers of completeness in ancient thought. This guy landed on even numbers in addition to just having a lot of kids. As for his riches, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. In other words, this guy is extremely wealthy. He is a successful businessman. He was a mogul of enterprise in his day. And thus, he had quite the reputation. Verse 3, he was the greatest of all the people of the East. His reputation from the big family to the unparalleled possessions to the business, business successes, they, they all, all these things would have suggested to those who knew him that this guy was a blessed guy. In their thinking, in the thinking of Job's neighbors in the land of Uz, they would have assumed this guy walks with God and his blessings prove it. Back to his family in verse 4. Notice this. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would invite their three sisters to come and join them. We probably shouldn't think that that was excessive partying or drunkenness. There's nothing necessarily negative about it. It just means that they rotated hosting, uh, hosting feasts for the family. It's a family that celebrates. It's a family that has reason to celebrate. It's a family that's united, at peace, caring for each other, celebrating together. Life is good in the family of Job. And yet there's this chord of dissonance in verse 5. I don't know, you, you see what you make of it. Verse 5, when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus he did continually. I think that's a bit of a mixed bag. I think it points to the reality of sin, to the possibility of deception, to the possibility of seemingly good kids who look outwardly good and blessed and happy, maybe going through the motions. And in the secrets of their heart, they curse God. In other words, they wish God really weren't there. That's the negative part of it. But because of that possibility, that negative possibility, what does Job do? He intercedes. He prays. He makes sacrifice for them. The point here is that Job is a good and godly father who had concern for his children. He was aware of the possibility of sin, so he prayed for them. He interceded for them. Here, fathers, on Father's Day, here is a wonderful example. Not that you would go and make sacrifices for your kids, but that you would pray for them, that you would care for them, and be concerned for them, even into their adult years. 
So again, it's a mixed bag, reality of sin, possibility of deception, and also the possibility of intercession through sacrifice. Now, Job will be making intercession at the end of this book in chapter 42 for his, for his friends. But those themes of sacrifice and intercession for sin will only find their fullest resolution in the death and resurrection of Jesus millennia after the story of Job. We'll come back to that. The second scene, we could call it a celestial challenge, verses 6 to 12. And here we're transported to heaven to witness a scene that not even Job will ever learn about, at least not according to the book. What a privilege we get in this rare peak into the heavenly realm. Verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. This is God's angelic, heavenly council, we could say. This is something like a heavenly staff meeting with God and his messengers. It's like a king holding court, receiving reports from his messengers, and then sending them out on his mission. But here, this day, Satan also came among them. That means he's not exactly one of them. It means he's probably not usually there. It says he also came among them. Why he's there and how often this happens, we don't know. We just know he's Satan, later known as the devil, the serpent. Here, literally in the Hebrew, it's the Satan. Because Satan isn't technically a name, it's a title. He is the Satan, and Satan means accuser or opposer. He is the accuser, the adversary. And we'll soon learn why. The Lord said to Satan, verse 7, From where have you come? Not that God doesn't know. The question is for us and for Satan. Satan answered, from going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down it, which I take to mean that Satan has been out and about looking for trouble. He's been out and about looking for trouble. As Peter will later put it in the New Testament, the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's what Satan was up to. But then, astonishingly, it is God that brings up Job as a good candidate for Satan to consider. You looking for someone to devour? You looking for someone you might attack? Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, verse 8. And again, here God repeats those words from verse 1. The fourfold description of Job, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Of course, Job never overhears this conversation, but can you imagine? Can you imagine being Job and overhearing this conversation? Satan is going on the attack, looking for someone to devour, and you hear God say, 
Have you considered Job? Sorry, God, did you just say Job? Are you sure you didn't say Bob or something? <laughs> It'd be terrifying and honoring, right? But as the heavenly conversation continues, it, it turns darker. Verse 9, Satan answered, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has? It's about possessions here. Does Job fear God for no reason? Or is it because of the reason of the stuff you give him? Now, on the one hand, this might be a fair question. Does Job fear God for no reason? Maybe it's a question that Job's friends and neighbors have entertained. Of course Job keeps his nose clean. He's got a lot to lose. It's a question that all of us should occasionally entertain about ourselves. Why do I go to church? Why do I open the Bible and spend time in the Bible in prayer? Is it because I fear God taking away things in my life that I like, good things that he has given? It's a fair question. On the other hand, Satan in this question is subtly striking at the glory and worth of God. Verse 11, he says to God, stretch out your hand and, and touch or, or take away all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So here's the celestial challenge. Here's the challenge of Satan. Satan is throwing down the gauntlet here. Again, this strikes at the glory and worth of God. It's not just about the possibility of Job's ill motives for his obedience. Or, or not just about the possibility of Job's waywardness if God take away, would take away things. Satan is suggesting that God is not worth obedience and worship without his physical temporary benefits. Satan is charging God with this. No one worships you because you're God. They worship you because of your sticks and carrots. That's the accusation. And God takes it on. He picks it up. He says, let's go. Verse 12. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. You can take away any of his stuff. Only against him, against his body, do not Stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out. Now this little window into this heavenly dialogue tells us a lot, but also leaves many unanswered questions. It tells us in story form what the Bible spells out elsewhere, like the reality of Satan the reality of a cosmic unseen realm, 
cosmic forces that are bigger than us mortals. It tells us and shows us the sinister intentions of Satan to relentlessly impugn God and attack his people. We're about to see in this story also a little something about Satan's power. He is a powerful being. But we also see see here in this scene in heaven, he has limitations. He is limited. God is greater. God has provided for and protected Job. And only God can lift that protection. Satan has given permission to touch Job. But only so far. There are limitations to what he can do. That's why Martin Luther, the reformer, said, the devil is God's devil. Oh, he's bad. But he is under the Lord's thumb. We also learn something of God's sovereignty over human suffering right here. There might be other means involved in any case of human suffering, but apparently God is sovereign over all human suffering. He's the one who gives and takes away. That's what we see from this scene in heaven, but there are many unanswered questions. For example, we don't know when or how often human suffering begins with this kind of satanic challenge. This could be a one-off situation. We don't know. We don't know if or when Satan is behind this or that calamity in this world. We know he can be behind things. We know he is behind things, but we don't know when that's the case. So we should be guarded there. There are many other things we don't know, and we shouldn't fill in the gaps for our curiosity. So knowing that there are some things we learn from this heavenly scene and knowing some things that are not answered by this heavenly scene, let's move on to more of what can be known. What next happened to Job? Thirdly, there's a disastrous day. Another day. We don't know how long from the heavenly scene, but eventually we come to a disastrous day. Verses 13 to 19. And, and let's try to just take in what happened here. I won't reread it, but if you look down in your Bibles over the paragraph, verses 13 to 19, you'll see some of the details that I'm just going to summarize for us. There are four rounds of disaster that must have taken place almost simultaneously. Two were natural disasters. Two were at the hands of evil people. The Sabaeans, verse 15, these are nomads from Arabia. They came and took all the oxen and donkeys and all the servants associated with those oxen and donkeys. Then lightning, verse 16, struck and burned up all the sheep and all the servants keeping sheep. And then the Chaldeans, verse 17, these nomads from Mesopotamia, they came and raided all the camels and killed all of the servants connected with them. And then the coup de grace, verse 19, a great wind tore through the house of the eldest brother where all the siblings were feasting once again. The house collapsed and all the children 
are dead. Job lost all his possessions, all his business, and all his children in one day. And he heard about it in perhaps less than a minute. The reports come to him like successive overlapping bombshells. Each messenger and each of their messages begin and end the same. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, and he ends with, I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Four rounds of devastating news reported to Job before he ever catches his breath from the very first bit of news. Job doesn't know what we know. We were included in the heavenly dialogue, the celestial challenge. So we know about Satan's accusations that Job walks with God just for the benefits. We know that what's at stake here is nothing less than the genuineness of Job's faith and the glory of God. We know that Satan is behind all this devastation and evil and calamity. Yes, Sabaeans and Chaldeans are involved and and yes, they don't need Satan to be evil people. They, they are, they were. But Satan was behind it. And God was behind that. God did not do evil, but he certainly allowed it by giving permission and setting limits. We know that. Job doesn't. We know that Job suffered that day not because of his sin, but because of his righteousness. We've titled this message, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? A theologically picky sort of person might say, that's the wrong question, Ryan, right? We're Calvinists. The real question is, why do good things happen to bad people? Because none are righteous, no, not one. And yes, I agree with that. But that's for another message. That's for a different passage. The story of Job is wrestling with the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Job wasn't perfectly good, but he was ridiculously good. What happened to him that fateful day was spectacularly bad and hard. Unusually so. Old Testament scholars, some of them anyway, like to think of Job as an every man story, they say. Job is an every man kind of character. I think that's the furthest thing from the truth. He's, he's not like us. He's very unusual. This is anything but a normal story. And that's the point. It has application value for us. You see, Job's righteousness and obedience was off the charts good to show us that even the really righteous can suffer. And Job's suffering was so severe and sudden so that it can speak to anyone who has less suffering than Job, which is certainly all of us. The Job story gives us an unusual peek 
into the unseen spiritual realm. Not so that we would expect to get the same. For Job didn't get such a thing. But we've been given a behind the scenes glimpse as the reason for his suffering so that we can know that there's likely way more going on in our suffering than we can imagine. I love a tweet John Piper posted years ago. God is doing 10,000 things in your life right now, and you might be aware of three of them. So let us ask ourselves the question that Satan asked of Job. Do we worship God for nothing? Do we worship God because he's God and he's good? Or do we worship God for his stuff, for his gifts, for the benefits? Well, let's allow every trial that comes along Every inconvenience, every blow, every loss. Let's let every one of those help answer that question for us. If you've lost much and you still believe in and trust God, you do not follow God and worship him for something. You worship him for him, right? It proves you're a Christian. In part, it helps you in your assurance. First Peter 1 speaks of this. Now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. Why? It's so that the tested genuineness of your faith might result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes back. This is what Autumn read for us from James chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he faces the test, he'll receive the crown of life. So be thinking of that question. Do you worship God for nothing or for something? And then let's take that question back to Job. Does Job really love God? Does he really worship God? What happens when the best gifts of his life are taken away? How will he respond? Well, fourthly, there is a righteous response. Verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. Stop there. Notice first, just from verse 20, notice what we may easily overlook. That it is right and good to mourn and grieve loss. Job tore his robe, probably a symbol for his heart being torn. He shaved his head perhaps as a symbolic identification with the dead or as a mark of a new painful chapter. He fell on the ground 
how could he do anything else? So notice that Job didn't keep it together. He, he didn't play it cool. He didn't stuff it down deep inside. I say it is right to mourn and grieve great loss. It is okay that it hurts. But let's also read on. He tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and what's next? He worshipped. He worshipped. It is right to mourn and grief and to take that grief and mourning to God and give him worship. For the believer, God is greater than all of his best gifts put together. And so when those good gifts are taken away, if God is all we have left, then God is enough. His loving kindness is better than life. So it's better than everything in life. And if you're not yet a Christian... Can you imagine living with this kind of otherworldliness? Can you imagine living with this kind of greater affection that things can come and go in your life, even loved ones, and God would be enough? Well, you need to know the kind of God we're talking about here. And for Job... These things are rooted in theological convictions. So he says in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Here he confesses his creatureliness, his lowliness, his fragility. He acknowledges the simple fact. Well, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 6, We brought nothing into this world. We're not going to take anything out of this world. He acknowledges that God's temporary earthly gifts are just that. And then the culmination. He confesses the source of the comings and goings of good gifts in this life are the Lord. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is not mistaken here. Yes, we know about the agency of Satan in the loss of these precious people and possessions. Job doesn't know that. But nevertheless, he knows that the ultimate source of all blessings is God. And so if the Lord has given, then it is the Lord when it goes away. We know that Job is not wrong to confess that the Lord gave and takes away because the author of the book of Job inserts the comment in verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It may not be easy to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it is certainly not wrong. 
And it's what we should aim for, what we should pray for. It's rooted in theological conviction that gets nailed down before the storm hits. It's rooted in personal love and trust in communion with this God before the storm hits. And so with these words, verse 21 and 22, it is now clear. Job demonstrates that he is a true believer. He worships God not merely for his benefits. The claim of verse 1 in his fourfold righteousness was not wrong. Satan was wrong, that accuser. And most importantly, God was right. So here's the first glimpse that we get in the book of Job, for why we've titled this series, Job and the Vindication of God. Because in Job's mournful, worshipful response to his devastating loss, God is vindicated in the face of his archenemy. Let me close with a couple of words of comfort. A couple of words of comfort here. Here's the first. If Job's response in verses 20 and 21 seemed to you to be, oh, so lofty, unrelatable, impossible, if it sounds unrealistic and idealistic, if you'd say, if verse 20 is the mark of how I should always respond to suffering in my life, then I have failed big time. Well, then you should be comforted to know that we have a big book ahead of us. And Job rides a roller coaster of emotion and good and bad thoughts throughout. For 35 chapters, Job wrestles through the pain of loss and the reason for it. At times, he wonders what God is up to. At times, he says things about God he shouldn't say. Job sometimes falters and fails from this devastating trial. So that's the first comfort for you, that Job is not an unrealistic superhero of a sufferer that you can't relate to. Just read on. And a second word of comfort is that as Christians living on this side of the coming of the Lord Jesus, we should not only look to Job as an example for our suffering, but look to the one to whom Job pointed to, Jesus. I'm convinced that a significant reason for the story of Job is that it foreshadows and anticipates a greater innocent sufferer, Jesus. Jesus was infinitely greater than Job, he was more righteous than Job, and his suffering was even greater than Job's. 
Has anyone's suffering been more undeserved than Jesus's? And his suffering was mysteriously even more purposeful than Job's. There was a purpose for the suffering of Job. And though the disciples in the middle of Matthew couldn't see it, there was purpose in the crucifixion of Jesus. As Paul puts it in Romans 3, God the Father put forward His Son to be a propitiation for sins, a payment, a, a covering, an atonement, uh, an appeasement. He did this by His blood. And this is to be received by faith to all who see their need for it. God did things this way, sending his son to suffer unjustly, that God in the end would prove to be, here's Paul's language, just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. In other words, God's love and justice have been most vindicated in the story of Jesus, not just Job. But it's there with Jesus that we find those themes of sacrifice and intercession all coming together. Or to put it another way, if we don't have a place in our thinking for undeserved suffering down here among us, then we don't really have a place for the cross of Jesus, which was the greatest undeserved suffering. Hence, we don't have a place for undeserved mercy. But if we look to Jesus and his undeserved suffering on that cross, and we let that lead our thinking, then we'll not only understand undeserved mercy, but it will begin to make sense of our undeserved suffering. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your sovereign goodness. Help us, Lord, in times of trial and suffering, however great or small, to keep our eyes on you, to look to Jesus, to worship the one who gives and takes away. Amen.